Hey everybody, welcome back for another Journey on the Fly, the podcast. So I'm going to continue, this is uh, episode three of our series on winter methods. So hang in there. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about rigging and fly selection. And then stay tuned to the end because I have an important invitation for up to five or six of my listeners that I would really love for you to participate in. So Journey on the Fly, the podcast, comes from and is established within Journey on the Fly Guide Services. We are a full-service guide. Uh, Well, yeah, we are a full-service fly fishing guide here in western Pennsylvania, as well as certain streams in central Pennsylvania. So if you're looking to get on the water and hone your skills some more or work some new things out or if you're brand new and you want to learn the world of fly fishing or at the very least begin to learn the world of fly fishing let us help we have a different tactic a different approach than some others and that is not to dismiss or uh, portray others as being less than us it's just that we are different we look at ourselves as being more of a liaison to the critters in the stream we want to introduce you to the water and we want to introduce you to the therapeutic nature of fly fishing and then of course all the cool stuff that comes along the techniques and the catching of the fish right so look us up journey on the fly dot fish and if you got any questions you can shoot me a an email at adam at journey on the fly dot fish i also wanted to throw this out there uh, before we jump in and i'll say it again at the end just as a reminder the moraine preservation society is holding the Winterfest 2023 at Moraine State Park at McDaniel's Launch area. And there's going to be a number of great vendors and uh, service people there for you to come out and chat with and learn and grow and find out what is to do in this wonderful area of ours between Lawrence and Butler counties and so forth. That is on February 4th. That's a Saturday. And I believe it's from 10 to 3 or 9 to 3. You don't want to miss it. The event is free. Stop by our booth. Uh, we're giving a couple little things away for free. And we love to chat to you, with you, with you about fly fishing. So we'll hope to see you there. Let's get into this. So winter fly fishing methods. We talked about safety. We talked about um, some of the, the larger portions of biomass in more of our higher quality streams. I don't know if I prefaced that before, but... A lot of the midges and, of course, any great bug hatches happen in streams where water's temperature is consistent and water quality is relatively consistent. So you see those hatches in tailwaters. You see those hatches on spring creeks. But that is not the only case. You do see those on other streams. Midges are a staple, and they ought to be a staple in your box, whether you're winter fishing or not. And then we talked about eggs. Um, smaller than what maybe you're going to go after king salmon up in Pulaski with, of course. We're talking eggs that are, you know, six millimeters or less. Micro eggs. Um, You'll see some of these tied. Uh, Josh Miller has one on his YouTube page. It's just a micro egg. And if you Google Josh Miller micro egg, you'll see him tie in probably, I think it's like a minute and 30 seconds, this fantastic tie that will catch fish for you. But let's think about Is there a difference in how you rig your system for winter fishing? There isn't that much difference. 
but there's a couple things to consider when you're approaching the water. One of the things is, is winter fishing is typically, not always, right now our winter fishing is different than what I'm about ready to suggest, but typically winter water is low and clear. So your approach is going to be very different, but your rigging and how, in my opinion, you should fish is going to be a lot different than maybe on a typical day where flows are up and visibility is okay, but not great. You know, you have that coloration in the water where you can see a little bit of visual separation between you and where the fish should be. So you have a little bit of uh, camouflage helping you, but not always. In the wintertime, usually we're dealing with the extremes of low, clear conditions. Um, so your rigging is going to be, uh, if you will, lighter, in my opinion. Now, there's debate that's been in the fly fishing world for a long time, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm going to put it to rest when it comes to fluorocarbon and its visibility to the fish. Here's what I think we can all agree on. If the light reflects reflects off of that fluorocarbon, the fish are going to see it. There is no perfect um, uh, chemical composition of fluorocarbon that exists. Now, there are some that brag that they're the lowest light refraction on the market, and maybe they are, but I'd have to see the study, right? We'd have to see that through the eyes of a fish. So let's weigh on the side of caution and say, okay, there's going to be some light refraction even on fluorocarbon. Let's just kind of lay that out there as par. But let's go to what I'm really talking about where fluorocarbon begins to shine. And I think there's two or three areas where we should really consider this when it comes to low clear conditions, which again is predominant in winter, typical winter situations. And as a caveat, the reason that I said our winter fishing is not like that now, if you're not experiencing the winter we are here in PA, well, we've gotten rain last week. We've gotten rain relatively often in the winter so far and warmer temperatures, and it's kept the water uh, not clear, right? It, we've got a bit of stain to it. I fished a Class A yesterday, and, well, actually, this will be coming out Wednesday, so I fished a Class A on uh, uh, Sunday night until dark, and the conditions were fantastic, um, in this super technical water because I could get a lot closer to the fish than I would normally never get to them. Um, but it, it at very least kept those fish from uh, being as skittish as they typically are in low clear conditions. So here's where I think fluorocarbon will uh, is, is, a, is your best choice, especially to downsize. So there's, there's, there's a couple to three, four things here. There's, there's one that's just kind of a, uh, just an interesting look at it. And I'll talk about that first. First of all, using smaller fluorocarbon, six and seven exit X, right? Some people think you're nuts, right? And because well, what do you need that? You know, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you hit a class A stream with wild brown trout that are living in there, their entire lifespan, they know their habitat. They know their environment. Any change in that environment that they can see or sense is going to send them under the rock. You won't even see that fish, let alone get a chance to toss a fly by it. So I think there's a sense of sportsmanship, if you will, or a sense of offering your sense of a, a challenge to yourself by using a smaller tippet. Because smaller tippet means you're going to have to finesse it more. 
you're going to have to learn to fight a fish without power mongering that thing in there and breaking off all the time. So that's one kind of soft issue, I think, is something that maybe we don't think about, but maybe it adds an extra challenge to it all if you're that kind of person that likes to do that to yourself, right? Then fluorocarbon, also, I want to think, you know, size ratio. So if you have a size 12, I don't know, pheasant tail with a bead head on it, you're tying size 6x on it will give it some more movement but you don't have to do that you could probably throw a 3x on or 5x i mean excuse me and you'd be just fine with the movement of that in the water but when you take a size 18 20 22 24 midge that has very little weight to it even if you're doing a two-bit midge one of charlie craven's where you got two um brass or two tungsten beads on it which is kind of cool because if you think about that um well we'll talk about that in a minute because i'm getting off track so um, you tie a size 5X tippet on this, given the conditions also of the, of the severity of the coldness, it's going to make it a little stiffer. That's exactly what you have. You get this stiff-armed piece of tippet that is holding on to, if you will, this fly, and it's not going to drift as naturally, in my opinion, as if you would step down to a 6x or a 7x tippet. It's going to give it more fluidity, I think, in the water. It just seems to make sense to me. Um, and it's also where I found success. Uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, when you tie a knot, even if you're tying a, um, a Davies knot, a real small, tiny knot on one of these small flies, man, it's still a big knot on a small fly. It's just how it goes. There's no way around that. So, I think you have that challenge. I think you have that size ratio where you want to give your fly more movement, more natural movement, more fluidity. And then I think you have the abrasion resistance because you're going to run into not just cold water, but you're going to run into harsher environments, possibly ice and things like that. So you need an advantage of having a material that your fly is tied on that will be more abrasive resistance. And that's one of the things that fluorocarbon really trumps. The second, or the, the, the fourth thing, I guess, here that I want to point out that a lot of us uh, may not know, but I think it's become more popular uh, in knowledge, available knowledge over the last few years, and that is smaller tippet sinks faster because you just have less mass in the water to cause drag. So if I'm in a situation that I need to get my flies down in front of those fish because they're sitting on those poles in that super soft water, because I promise you the brown that I caught yesterday and the one that I missed was literally in the softest water in the pool. They were not in the runs. They were in the back eddies, just chilling. And I need to still get that fly down in front of those fish the fastest I possibly can, especially if I have to make an adjustment or it's some kind of uh, uh, technical type of water where you have that back eddy and you need to maybe move your rod tip or something to kind of keep the fly continuing in the eddy because it's not a typical normal drift, right? So those are my thoughts on that. I think once you get into less superior quality of materials, then what you find is, is that the weather affects them more. So here's where I would suggest buying uh, well-produced tippet, Cortland, um, some of Rio's topper stuff, uh, Umpqua. And the reason for that is, is because these are manufacturers, especially Cortland. These are people who have um, done the, the hard work of creating and chemically uh, um, and, and chemically an analyzing and testing these materials in the real world 
uh, and con controlling the quality and the outcome of all this. And they know their material. They, they know how it works in the different conditions. And higher quality tippets will tend to not, if you will, stiffen up or freeze up. And I don't mean not ice up. I mean where they'll get just super stiff like they're have rigor mortis or like you've ever come across a dead animal that's been out in the cold and well you kick it it doesn't move it's stiff as a board uh higher quality tippets have a less uh less chances of that happening and then as far as your rig itself i think it needs to be light i think uh if it's low and clear conditions you need distance between you and that 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 critter that you're going after that 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 trout you just do um and then on top of all, so so what does that leader look like? Well, maybe you're looking at more of a Harvey leader that um, if you're going to build your leaders, you're going to have multiple tapers down and it's going to be 10 or 13 feet. Say, so, oh my gosh, that's a long leader. Well, yeah, it's a long leader. You need some distance between you and that fish. Now, I high stick or urine in for tight line quite a bit. It is my preferred method. I, I almost don't like saying that because it's not my preferred method. I enjoy dry fly fishing. I enjoy fly, joy, I enjoy jigging and 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 stripping uh, uh, um, uh, streamers. So don't don't take this as I'm, you know, a single kind of fly fishing guy. I don't think you should be. I think we should appreciate all the different aspects of this sport and rejoice and inspire each other to look at all of them. Otherwise, you're the butthead, to be honest, right? In my opinion, I think you're the butthead. If you're the, the dry or die guy or if you're the I'm a Euro-niffing bro dude, you're the butthead. I think fly fishing is bigger and greater and more vast for us to appreciate a lifetime of learning all these different techniques and approaches. Not one is superior to the other, granting different circumstances. It just isn't. And we definitely shouldn't push that. Okay, off the soapbox, I digress. Back to the to the midge and the winter fishing, right? So um, we're getting that fly down. We're getting it down quick and we're getting it more fluent because we're using smaller tippet sizes and things like that. And then if you're crazy like me, you want to add an extra challenge as well. So that does that. Um, I think using a longer fly rod is important here too. If you have available a 10-foot rod to your, to, to your use, that's going to be helpful because that's going to give you extra distance. It's going to give you 10 feet plus whatever. So... Like I mentioned, I use a mono rig an awful lot. I use a mono rig when I'm stripping and jigging for um, trout and bass and streamers. Uh, it's not exclusively how I approach that, but it is an awful lot how I do it. I use a mono rig when I'm nymphing, um, but not always. Sometimes I will put an indicator, whether it's a Dorsey or a New Zealand or even the new Oros, the smaller ones. But here's the key to all of it, especially... Um, and I think this is overall fishing, but in particular, added to everything we're talking about, a fly first entry and eliminating drag are going to be your best tactics to learn and to master when it comes to winter fly fishing, especially with these small flies, because they, they need time to sink and they need no drag, right? They need nothing to affect their effectiveness to sound completely redundant. When you have a fly first entry, say with a tuck cast or with a water load cast, keeping the stick high, which really would be like a water load tuck cast, right? You pick that spot, you make 
your approach. You make that cast. You allow those flies to sink first, even with an indicator. High stick it and don't let that line, don't let that leader beyond the indicator, beyond the flies, take up drag. Let the flies get into the zone and control it, whether you're leading the flies or you're carrying yourself along with the current, right? So very important is a fly first all the time. But in particular, these small flies need the time to sink and to settle, if you will, to get into the strike zone. So you may be leading them in the small water or the or you may be leading them in a faster current-ish or you may be guiding these flies in the slower water. Another thing that you don't want to do if you are going to approach it in a uraniffing way, don't stick your arm out. Because in low clear conditions, these these even when the fish are lethargic, listen to last week's podcast, they're still fish. They can still see monoc, uh, you know, binocular. They can still see monocular. They still feel and they still respond a lot like they do any other time of the year. And if your fly is not drifting deadly, it's not going to be taken. So you need these advantages. You need to take these approaches and to take this seriously in the sense that just wailing it over there, um, you might catch a rainbow or two. Listen, rainbows are, they're like the crazy fish. Uh, the fishing boat here in PA stocks rainbows mainly or predominantly because they grow faster. So it makes uh, fishing more excitement, exciting for a lot of us. Um, but rainbows are a little easier to catch than browns. Maybe not stock browns. Uh, maybe there's a genetic uh, um, gap there between the, the stock and the browns that this doesn't apply, but maybe not. Uh, I know that when they do stock browns and rainbows together, predominantly you catch more rainbows than you do browns. Uh, maybe just because the strain or the the genetics of these browns just carry with them that advantage of they're just a little pickier. They're a little, I don't want to say smarter, but maybe pickier or more instinctively um, uh, superior is a good way to put that. So you have these, these different fish. So, you know, when you, when you go after these browns and some of these other, other uh, fish that may be more instinctively um, superior, I'm going to coin that one, <clears throat> patent, trademark, thank you. Um, you. You have to have a bag of tricks, right? You just do. Uh, it's no different than, you know, approaching muskie. I'm not going to throw a nymph to try to catch a mus muskie. I'm not going to, you know, a, a friend of ours, a friend of mine that I work with, that he'll be on this show here really soon, both um, for my invitation from the last video or last podcast and the one I have towards the end for all of you to talk about winter, winter fishing, but also eventually to talk about muskie, to talk about the toothy critters a little bit more. You know, he insists if you're on the boat with him, you don't pull that fly out of the water until you figure eight at the boat these are tactics that he's learned over the years that that could be the difference between that thousandth cast and actually locking into one of these guys or gals for that matter or not so you have to take some of these things a little bit more seriously than just hucking something out there and being okay with it so let's move on real quick to some flies what kind of flies are we looking at well for this I am going to reference you 
and I'll actually link this in here to um, uh, Fly Lords Magazine has a great article from one of the top notch, in my opinion, midge experts in the world, which is Sir Pat Dorsey, right? Um, all of you know Pat. He's uh, incredibly knowledgeable on midge life cycles and things like that. Um, he fishes almost exclusively tailwaters. So he fishes um, water that the advantage is he knows the consistency and the quality of the water. The disadvantage of it is, is the quality and consistency of the water because that produces consistent hatches, but it, it produces um, more weary and wise fish, if you will, as far as that goes in the animal kingdom. So some of the, the flies of choice, um, just your zebra midge, right? Everybody should have five, six different colors of zebra midges, even varying not just the, the, the underlying color, but even the ribbing colors. You need midges in there that are larva stage. You need midges in there that are like the mercury blood midge. Um, you need midges in there uh, like the top secret, something that looks pupating or flashy even. And you need to try these midges as you go and find out what is going to get the fish on the hook. <laughs> you need top water midges. You need the Griffith snat. You need maybe a Griffith snat with some high vis on it. I got some of those tied up in my box um, where it looks like a cluster of midges. You need some adult midges. You need some midges that are, uh, if fish start to rise, man, take advantage of the excitement of catching a fish on top water. Because that is the um, that is the 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 essence of fly fishing, right? We don't want to miss those opportunities and and look past them. Now, bringing Chris on here, we already talked about this a couple of days ago. He's going to chat with you about something that is really interesting. Because, like I said earlier in this podcast, as the caveat with midges is, is that better midge hatches happen in higher quality water, tailwaters and spring creeks. Doesn't mean that if you are in a freestone stream, that there's no midge hatches. That is completely false. Of course, there's going to be midge hatches there. But there isn't always high-quality streams available to you, and there's trout in them, and you need to figure out what works. I'm not going to talk to you about that until Chris is on here because he had a great story that midges weren't working. He had to figure out what was the food source and what do I have in my box that mimics that food source? And now we can catch fish. Even in the wintertime, you'd be surprised. A lot of talk is put into, and I'm an example of that, midges and eggs. Because predominantly that's what, you know, that's the biggest amount of biomass. Eggs and um, midges. But if a stream has hatches later in the year... It also has other bugs in the mud, in the rocks, in the substrate, and they get turned over. If a creek doesn't have a good bug life, it might have bait fish. Hence, our discussion in a couple weeks on streamer fishing in the winter. Very interesting, right? So, those are my two cents. That's my sense on uh, talking about rigging. Um, talking about leaders, talking about fly selections, um, you know, throwing eggs in there and, uh, you know, even some betas because they should start to become, you know, moving around in, in February, Marchish really in most of our areas here in the East anyways. 
um, and of course a little later on out west possibly because of temperatures which is very much um, reliant on temperatures so think about these things here's my invitation I threw this out last week I want to throw it out again I would like five six seven of you if you're interested to send me an email adam at journeyonthefly.com excuse me dear lord adam at journeyonthefly.fish dot fish not dot com adam at journeyonthefly.fish if you're interested in chatting in a recorded situation through zoom i'll send you a link out you connect through your computer or your phone let's chat for a half an hour to an hour about winter fishing maybe you're like dude you're stupid you're wrong and i'm going to tell you i'll hear it i'll listen to you i'll probably push back but i'll hear it and listen maybe you're just like oh man why didn't he mention that well i'm willing to grow or maybe i just didn't say everything i thought i should say because i don't want to bore you for 35 minutes or two hours or come off as if i know everything because that is the truth for sure chris my buddy chris is going to join us and uh we might actually see if we can connect with a friend of um his who's a guide out of the south holston which is a tailwater i think there's some things we can learn from him especially about winter fishing or even midge fishing in tailwater uh, we'll see uh it depends on his availability but if you're available and you're interested in this we're going to do this in a week so i'm going to need to know uh in the next four days so that we can get this planned and i can get your email and we can know when we're going to connect and what day we're going to connect so we can do the recording please consider it i'd love to hear from you and uh, maybe everybody else would too right so adam at journeyonthefly.fish till the next time keep your lines wet and your flies in the fish's mouth god bless <laughs>